1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. I recently spoke with Eugene Reichel and Will Garriott about their new edited volume, Addiction Trajectories. This came out just this year in 2013 with Duke University Press. This volume is satisfying and really fascinating on a number of different levels. On the one hand, it is a collection of individually really, really interesting and penetrating case studies that each focus in some way on the emergence or transformations of addiction as an object. And so those case studies range from rural West Virginia to Russia to lots of different localities in between. In addition to that, though, it's a volume that, taken together, engages with and probes some really fundamental and I think really important issues and concepts for science studies more generally. So these include the nature of historical ontologies as they appeal to and apply to addiction as an object. Those include ways of thinking about addiction and its Performances and manifestations as a form of experiment. And so we have here the spaces of addiction as a way of thinking about spaces of experimentation, which I think is really interesting. And also, there are a lot of different ways of thinking here about the emergence of illnesses, diseases, ways of being as objects, as new forms of existence, um, which I think is generally important for many of us who work on science studies right now. Also, even if you're not inherently interested in academic science studies, it's also just a really sensitively wrought, penetrating, and really, really interesting set of case studies that bring us into, in a really empathetic and a really sort of carefully done set of ways, the experiences, the lives, the communities, the families, and the individual's that collectively make up ethnographies and histories of addiction. So it's a great collection. I highly recommend it. And I hope you enjoy the conversation to come um, because I certainly did. We're here today to talk with Eugene Reichel and William Garriott about their new edited volume, Addiction Trajectories. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Eugene and Will, and thanks so much for both making the time to talk with me today and for making the time to talk with me together. I'm really excited about this, so thank you.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: (laughs) So, let's start off by talking a little bit about what brought you to the project in the first place. and Let's start with Eugene. What kind of work were you doing? What kind of research were you involved in when you came to the project from which this volume emerged? Can you tell us a little bit about your um, your research interests beyond the volume or those that brought you to the volume?
2: Right. So um, I guess a good way to start it out is to mention that we were, um, both Will and I were graduate students um, around the same time in the Department of Anthropology at Princeton. Um, and... Will speak to his project, but we both ended up working on issues related to um, addiction. My own project, um, which ended up focusing on um, addiction medicine in Russia, post Soviet Russia, started out more as a, uh, it started out from my interest in, in post socialist transformation. So I actually started out quite far from this kind of uh, uh, question. Um, and then at some point I got interested in. The conversations that were taking place around um, the so called demographic crisis taking place in Russia during the 1990s and then later, um, which had to do with a, 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 a drop in birth um, rates and, and a pretty rapid rise in mortality that was taking place and a consequent um, decline in the population. Um, and one of the things that different epidemiologists and public health people working on this kept pointing to was the uh, Role that alcohol-related harm and alcoholism played in that. So I got interested in 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 looking at that from a, a non-public health, um, you know, non-epidemiological um, kind of approach as a, as an as an anthropologist, um, and quickly got particularly interested in this. Um, What's called Narcology, which is the the name for um, the specialty of addiction medicine in um, in the whole former Soviet Union um, and I can talk about that a little bit more later, but basically it was it was so different from the kinds of addiction medicine inter- intervention that were taking place elsewhere that I you know pursued that entirely as my uh, project um, and then so, so, looking more broadly at addiction and, and thinking um, kind of more comparatively came um, naturally out of that. And I think that's where our conversation, uh, my conversation with Will, started that led to this volume. <laughs>
0: Well,
1: well, how about
0: you? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's interesting that Eugene mentioned uh, us overlapping at Princeton. One of the first things that I remember doing when I began my uh, studies at Princeton was attending his. Dissertation, fieldwork, proposal defense, um, and it actually—I actually still have a very strong memory of that event. I had not met Eugene before, and I just was extremely impressed with him as a person and with his his project itself. And so, you know, early on, um, he he was someone that that I was uh, uh, interested in possibly working with, thinking with, and as I moved into my own field work, we ended up having additional conversations. Um, Like Eugene, I did not start out with an inherent interest in drugs and addiction. Uh, I entered graduate school actually intending to study uh, Pentecostalism within the Appalachian region of the U.S. And as I began doing just the very kind of early steps of field work, doing things like reading local newspaper papers from areas where I thought I might conduct field work later on uh, I started seeing stories printed uh, that recounted things like a guy would walk into a pharmacy with a hunting rifle and tell the the person at the pharmacy counter to give them all of the oxycotton they had in in the store, um, and you see one of those, and and maybe you just kind of write it off as a news of the weird kind of occurrence. But started seeing more and more stories along those lines, and there started being more and more coverage within local papers, and and then to a degree in national papers of um, issues related to substance use and abuse, particularly with regard to OxyContin and and having an interest in the region and I, I ended up doing some preliminary field work in the summer of 2004 talking to people in eastern Kentucky and had some really kind of transformative experiences through those conversations and hearing from local people what they saw issues related to drugs and addiction were doing to their community that from that my project started to shift towards these concerns, and by the time then that I was prepared to uh, enter the field and conduct my own field work, the issue of methamphetamine had really taken off within the region, and had emerged as a national concern as well. And so, as I entered the field, I, I was particularly interested in looking at the local manifestation of this problem uh, but also seeing how that local experience was interacting with uh, this broader national concern and problem problematization of what was going on.
1: Great. Now the volume itself emerged as you mentioned early in the book from a workshop, and this was a workshop in 2009, called Anthropologies of Addiction, Science, Therapy, and Regulation. So can you talk a little bit about that workshop? Sort of what... Um, what led you to move from the workshop to the volume? And is there anything that you'd like to talk about that was particularly transformative for both, either or both of you about the kind of conversations or the kind of things that happened at the workshop? And maybe we'll start with Eugene.
2: Uh, sure. Sure. Um... So just this is maybe um you know somewhat interesting story and just insofar as it tells about how these kinds of um volumes take shape. Before the workshop we actually had a um a panel at the um one of the meetings of the American Anthropological Association, way back in two thousand and seven, um which tells you how long these pro- these projects uh, sometimes take. Um and that was a, a pretty large panel. We brought together a number of people who were um, initially, we just were interested in who, you know, who else was working on issues of um, addiction. And, and who, who were the young scholars who were you know, around the same stage where we were? Because we had a general sense that there was a kind of interest in issues like the ones we were working with that was somehow different from the way that it had been done. In the past, um, but it was a very inchoate sense of that differentness and I think it has taken us the whole process of editing the volume um, and writing the introduction to get a much better sense of what what's distinctive um, so for that uh, conference, we put together um, a quite large um, uh, panel. we had two great discussants, Joe Dumit and joel Um and then, after that, I had a postdoc at uh, McGill and we started talking about the possibility of um, organizing a, a conference there um, and we for the conference, we ended up inviting um, a, a, an additional number of people and actually a, a number who didn 't whose chapters would either for one reason or another, didn't contribute chapters of the final um, uh, book. Um, but it was a really, um, so we, we met, uh, you know, we did it, we tried to do it on the um, kind of model of something like the SAR conferences in, in New Mexico. That's the school for it, advanced research um, where they gather people and people, you pre-circulate papers um, so that rather than presenting papers, you can really get to a um you know in depth conversation and workshopping of the of the papers um, and I, it and it was really a a very substantive conversation that we had
0: um, Will, did
2: you have uh thoughts uh, on that
0: i would you know I would just again underscore uh something Eugene said, which is beginning with the panel at the anthropology meetings that really uh, developed from this since we had, there were a number of, of scholars, all from kind of a similar career cohort, if you will, who were coming at the issue of addiction. Uh, whether it's kind of a new or novel way or, or, or not, we could discuss that somewhat. Mm-hmm. But certainly our touchstones in thinking about it were perhaps different. So many of us were coming out of um, particular training in or or reading in, Uh, Medical anthropology that was being produced at the time, as well as a kind of deeper engagement with with science and technology studies. And that was, in our view, giving this work on addiction a particular inflection, if you will, and... and, Even as ethnographers, uh, people working on addiction seemed to be bringing uh, an interesting kind of perspective to the work that they were doing. I think with regards to the conference at McGill, we were extremely fortunate because many of those folks um, whose work had been an influence on those of us who were writing on addiction, scholars who hadn't necessarily been working on addiction per se, but who were doing very influential work on medical anthropology, um, cultural psychology and psychiatry, um, science and technology studies, uh, those individuals were there and could respond from their own perspective to the work that w- it was being done specifically on addiction. So I think having the opportunity to kind of incubate our thinking within the context of McGill was really um, um, important for the development of of the volume, and and I feel very privileged to have had that opportunity.
1: So, well, I'll actually ask you, if you don't mind, to expand a little bit on something that you just mentioned. You mentioned... Um, the involvement of colleagues who work on um, in science and technology studies or science, technology, and society. Um, and since listeners of the channel might be particularly interested in that aspect of, of the story and of the volume, can you say a little bit more about, and Eugene, please also feel free mm-hmm. uh, to engage in this, about um, some of the ways that some themes from or kinds of modes of questioning or modes of argument or concepts coming from STS particularly Um, struck you in this context? Are there any that you find particularly uh, germinal or influential in terms of how you're approaching this set of problems and or how the conversations of the workshop that led into the volume um, were approaching these problems or these concepts?
0: Sure. Um, You know, it's one of the things that I think, for me anyway, the influence of science and technology studies had on my my thinking about addiction was that real focus on not taking categories of disease and illness for granted, Mm -hmm. uh, pointing to the fact that these categories typically have histories. Certainly, there has has been significant work that's been done charting the unique history of addiction as a concept and, and the continued contested nature of addiction as a as a concept um, of experience of diagnosis, etc. So what I think that the science and technology studies work did uh, for me, at least on one level, was to um, increase the uh, tools available to me to think through the concept of addiction as this kind of contingent and contested category. I think also some of the work coming from say actor network theory or, 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 you know, work along those lines opened up a new space for thinking about drugs and the relationship between people and drugs and thinking um, about more interesting ways of theorizing the relationship between those two things. So, so those those are two things that for me were particularly important, and I'll let you Eugene pick up with with his own take. Great, thank
1: you.
2: Yeah, I think um, well, a couple things, um, and and that's that. I think that in a way, there's two ways in which. Um, Science, technology, and society kinds of um, conversations have entered into our thinking. Um, one is through you know our more explicit engagement with some of these um, literatures, but the other is just the fact that I think since the '90s, um, since at least the mid to late '90s. Um, there's been such an um, intense engagement between uh, science and technology studies and um, anthropology, particularly medical anthropology, that many of the kind of central insights have already been sort of metabolized into anthropology um, and that, you know, we people will will cite certain kinds of um, uh, texts and, and certain ideas um, in a way that is doesn't seem um, opaque to most readers right and doesn't doesn 't um, look like it 's a reference to something outside of one 's field of expertise so I think there's been a big quite a blurring of um, especially in the areas around um, Uh, people studying emergent uh, ideas about the brain, the neurosciences. Um, You know, I think you would be uh, kind of hard pressed to draw clear distinctions between uh, anthropological literature and one that is somehow more properly SDS in that area. Um, I think, so I think generally in in terms of our uh, volume and our approach, broadly the focus on knowledge knowledge production knowledge um the the, the um uh the, the embedding uh, the enactment of knowledge in different practices and technologies its materialization um its circulation around um into different uh, settings um these kinds of issues uh, so knowledge and intervention of course because um The the focus on, in in this case, uh, therapeutics is really central to this uh, volume as well. Um, I think those are very broadly again the themes that we're um, taking, as much as any more specific kinds of uh, concepts. Um, You know, there's 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 something else, but I'll I'll, that where I think, but but we can come back to it because I think it might. it, it may come up more more organically in the conversation. Oh, why don't anyway, you just uh, put
1: it on the table? <laughs> okay. Who knows where the conversation's going? There's so much to talk about in the volume. Why don't you just get it out right now?
2: So I okay. So basically, I think one of the things that's interesting, and this is where I mean, my own um, maybe my own thinking is going partly coming out of having uh, edited this. Um, is that I think that one of the really interesting um, kinds of work that's being done around um, science and technology studies um, and is the, the the work that's sort of um, potentiating new kinds of um, interdisciplinary conversations between folks in the social sciences and particularly um, uh, people working in the biosciences. Um, and this is, you know, I think there's a lot of conversation about this kind of stuff going on right now. Um, but in essence, I, I find what's useful is that um, having produced over a number of decades uh, a number of very sophisticated tools for thinking about um, the, the production of knowledge um, and its uses, um, we're, I think now able to use that not only to produce, um, to, to engage in critique, but increasingly to reformulate the kind of ways in which we engage with, um, people, uh, researchers and scholars working in other, other domains. Um, and to take a really specific example from the, the volume, to me, um, one of the reasons it was interesting and important to use the idea of trajectories, um, as a kind of overarching rubric is that this is a concept or a term that's being used, um, quite widely now in, um, kind of more mainstream, um, biomedical psychiatric, uh, conversations around addiction, um, if you look at the NIMH um sort of uh, 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 pages about their kind of uh, uh directions that they'd like research to take looking at um addiction and illness trajectories is um one that they um uh, set out and we can come back to what they mean specifically um but my point right now is just simply that um what I think is interesting not is not to take up that um, term in the same way that they're taking it up, but to de- you know develop our own uh, set of understandings around the term and really allow it to, to function as a kind of um, what Peter Gallison um, calls a, a kind of a trading zone, you know, a kind of a space where different epistemic communities from different disciplines can meet, um, transform each other maybe, but not lose what's distinctive to them. Um, and I, I think that's, that's another, um, excuse me for the very long no, no, uh, description, <laughs> um, but I think that's another place where a lot of work in science and technology studies and history and philosophy of, of science has been really fruitful.
1: This is actually perfect because it gets us right into what I wanted to ask you about next. And so it's a great segue. So as you both mentioned um, already in different ways, the papers in the volume, the volume itself focus on addiction as an object of anthropological inquiry. And it does that by taking the particular thematic focus that Eugene's just mentioned, which is a focus on something that you both call addiction trajectories. So we've Already started talking about that, so let's continue because this is really um, a chance, I think, to open up the larger kind of work that the volume's doing. Why you've you know uh, kind of composed it in this way, and uh, how it speaks more broadly to I think lots of different fields, even beyond anthropology. Um, and I, I agree with you, Eugene, in the in terms of the importance of and the increasing proliferation of the kinds of really I think wonderful transdisciplinary conversations that using um, you know objects like. Uh, addiction or kinds of concepts from STS, like trading zones, really make possible. Okay, so addiction trajectories. Um, Let's just, I guess, start right from the beginning. So can you talk about this idea of addiction trajectories? What does this mean? And what are some of, um, perhaps, the most influential kinds of conceptual bases from which um, this emerged for the both of you. And and maybe, Will, um, you can start, and then, Eugene, please jump in as well.
0: Sure. Um, So I think, for me, one of the primary touchstones goes back to the work that was being done by the scholars who have been included in the volume itself. In particular, the kind of ethnographic work and ethnographic sensibility they were bringing to their projects. Um, There's this real emphasis on um, what... Uh, what one of the contributors ends up calling following um, individuals either who were addicted or who were enrolled in a therapeutic program or or something else. Um, And at a very basic level, that just kind of meant, you know, being with that person as they moved through their, their life in a way that's very kind of familiar ethnographic technique. But it also included looking at other things that, that went into the production of their selfhood, if you will. Um, and so those could be reports about them. They could be, um, in my case, they would be kind of criminal case files that, that have um, this this real uh, distinct connection to the person, even though they are... are Uh, kind of particular textual representation of that person. And so for me, that was the primary way that got me thinking about addiction in terms of trajectory was um, by looking at the ethnographic material and saying, "Well, what happens when we start thinking about addiction from this particular ethnographic perspective, from this particular ethnographic sensibility that 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 looks at the movement of people and things and objects, the the um, kind of vitality of the worlds in which they live? What if we use that as our primary touchstone for thinking?" Through addiction, and so for me, that, that was that was really how I got into the kind of mindset of, of thinking about addiction in terms of trajectories.
1: And you mentioned, um, if I could just jump in quickly, the importance, mm-hmm. or in the introduction, you mentioned that it's important um, for us to understand that this is not just any movement; it's directed movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Actually, either one of you,
0: uh, Eugene. Do you want to take that, or do you want me, or do you want me to pick up on that? You want to just continue and then say sure. yeah, yeah, something fine. else I want to mission. <laughs> Okay, sure. Um, so I think one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about it as, as directed movement is just to add some some qualifiers for understanding that this movement per se is not totally free. Um, it's not just the person kind of moving willy-nilly through the world, but as they move through the world, um, that movement is constrained, it is it is directed, um, and by tracing the movement, those constraints or other um, kind of agentive forces in the person's life come into relief. So by following a particular person as they move through the world, um, whether it is seeking um, seeking out a drug, whether it's seeking out therapy, whether it is, um, you know, seeking after a person who is struggling with addiction that that this other person cares about, um, whether it's tracking a particular relationship that revolves in one way or another, um, the use or the attempt to stop using a particular substance um, by tracing those very human movements through particular uh, what we call milieu, uh, you get to see the the broader contours of those milieu, and that starts to um, open up a larger picture of addiction, ultimately.
1: And I, I'll just jump in. Sorry. I mean, just, mm-hmm. um, I, the reason why I think um, I'm kind of highlighting this and, um, and asking you to talk a little bit about it specifically is that this is one of the ways in which I think uh, this book could really not only learn from STS as it's done, but really speak back to STS because one of the you know, really common themes that we tend to be talking about and hearing about. The sort of one of the hip and sexy themes in STS is this theme of circulation. And one mm-hmm. of the things that this does, I think, really productively, is reminds us or gives us a way to talk about circulation in a much more specific, focused mm-hmm. kind of a mode. That's not just oh, things are moving around. Is yeah. that great? Let's just look at them. And so this is something that I think could be a real contribution to the way we're talking about um, these kinds of movements and and STS more generally. I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, So, Eugene, please.
2: Yeah, just to pick up on what Will was saying, I think also we were thinking about, you know, the the way that in anthropology and in much of the social sciences, um, arguments often veer between ones that are more structure-oriented and ones that are more, you know, agentive or agency-focused or or more emphasizing of contingencies. So, in the case of um, addiction, Um, related discussions we have you know um, interpretations that that focus almost entirely on kind of social structural factors um, in which the, the, the the Um, the um, outcomes that people are experiencing, the the kind of usually the suffering that they're experiencing seems very overdetermined by their circumstances. Um, Whereas you have other accounts in which um, it seems as though people are always able to somehow, um, anything could happen, right? As it were, it almost seems in in some cases as though people are just able to um, do you know, make things up as they go along. There's such an emphasis on contingency. So we really wanted to strike the, uh, this was an attempt to strike a balance between those two and, um, but emphasize how in this particular case, there are certain um, important um, constraining um, and shaping factors. Um, But at the same time, there is, um, openness, there is contingency. We don't know necessarily the direction the a, a trajectory will take, right? Um, even though we, we can, we, we, we think we might. Um, the other thing I wanted to just mention is that the um, uh, You know, we didn't set out, we didn't start with the idea of trajectories and then build up a big uh, kind of conceptual um, uh, uh, justification for it and then set out and and find papers that would um, uh, fall into that category. We really, as I mentioned earlier, uh, invited people who were doing interesting work that felt somehow new that many of whom were, you know, younger scholars. Um, and the focus on trajectories really emerged from us looking at the ethnography and the work that they were doing and the kind of analyses that they were doing and seeing this as something that was emergent from from that, um, which we then subsequently um, have tried to work up as a, as a kind of a, a useful concept, um, so that's, I mean, that's just to, to speak to the kind of process of putting together this, this volume.
1: Great. And um, so you identify early in the volume, actually, three different kinds of addiction trajectories, epistemic trajectories, therapeutic trajectories, and experiential and experimental trajectories. And so um, it might be useful to talk a little bit, even you know, briefly, about some of these, because I think it really gives a understanding these three kinds of trajectories that you're identifying in the volume really helps to give a sense of um, the diversity of the kinds of topics that some of the authors are treating, but also the commonality at these different levels of movement and trajectory, the level of lives, the level of treatments, and the level of concepts that really helps to hold this together as a conceptual frame. So the first kind, epistemic trajectories, we've already talked a little bit about that um, in talking about the ways that some of the concepts from STS have um, motivated some of the work that the volume's doing and the way that you're thinking about these concepts. But one of the things that you mentioned when talking about epistemic trajectories, particularly in the volume, is you mention um, sort of the importance of the existence of rival models of addiction. Um, And I think this is worth maybe talking a little bit about because this is, in fact, um, something that you, in the volume, the both of you, identify as one of the factors that contributes to the emergence of addiction as an object in the first place, namely one of these models being a kind of neurobiological model in terms of brain dysfunction addiction, but that's not the only model. So why don't we talk a little bit about that just to sort of understand this this concept of epistemic trajectories. What are some of the models of addiction you're working with here that your authors are working with here? And in what way is that important for us to understand these epistemic trajectories as particular kinds of trajectories? And either one of you um, who feels particularly excited about this can jump in.
0: Maybe Eugene um, yeah.
1: or, or well, well, either, well yeah. <laughs> either way.
0: Um, well, I can I can I will at least speak uh, for the kind of U.S. North American context, mm-hmm. um, and and then maybe Eugene can open that up a little bit with the the uh, work that that he's done in Russia, because I think you know the differences between those really really speak to what we're trying to highlight by by using the term epistemic trajectory so in the in the u s context, it remains an extremely contested concept. I mean one kind of signifier of that is the fact that the term addiction" has kind of moved in and out of the DSM at different uh, you know different iterations of that volume it's it's been accepted and then it 's been rejected and then it's brought back in so I think that alone tells you a little bit about the um, shifting consensus that that revolves around that term in particular. Um, I remember reading a book that at this point I think was, uh, I, I picked it up at, at one point a few years ago, that was a book um, I think entitled something like Addiction Treatment and within the first five pages it, it just talked about why addiction was a terrible term to use to to understand this phenomenon and proposed a different one. If you talk to people, say, in AA versus people who are in say the kind of NIDA sphere they may both use the term addiction but mean relatively different things by that term or or even perhaps more importantly the types of therapeutic interventions that they see as most necessary Um, And having the greatest potential for success may be pretty different, even though they both are talking about addiction. They're both talking about kind of an inability to control particular actions, desires, needs, what have you. Um, And so, you know, all of that creates for, on the one hand, uh, confusion, you could say. And so that's one of the reasons why some scholars, both inside and outside of the social sciences, reject the term Altogether, or just kind of say it's it's this kind of, you know, a, 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 I think one scholar's called it a kind of quasi disease model. Um, if we're talking specifically about the disease model of addiction, um, and so I think the fact that it, it's not just ambiguous but specifically contested, depending um, not just on your your background, whether say you're a scientist or whether you are someone who has struggled. Um, all of your life with, with your inability to control your particular use of a substance. Um, or if you're someone in public policy, the terms you use and the, uh, more general ideas about the human condition, the way the body works, uh, the way the self works, the way that, um, particular substances affect the human body. All of that is kind of indexed within the particular terminology we use. And instead of trying to come down on and posit a particular definition or something like that, we really try to highlight what having this diverse and um, uh, contested field means for everyone with a stake in addiction whether that is someone who sees themselves as suffering from addiction, whether that's someone who's researching addiction, whether that's someone whose job it is to... Enforce laws that are there to control addiction or at least drug use and circulation, so again, you know I keep kind of coming back to this ethnographic sensibility that you see throughout the volume. Mm-hmm. Um, having that more open ended notion of a trajectory to think through those things uh, for us was a powerful way to address more broadly the um, diverse field let 's say that that is the the um, thinking on an experience of addiction.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I think we were we were very lucky to have um, the the great contributors we had um, were able to, to get to, uh, for this uh, volume because a number of them have done work um, elsewhere that really has been um, key in understanding some of these um, kinds of conceptions or frameworks or models of addiction um, so um, we write quite a bit here about the uh, emergence of a of a Potentially, I don't know if I want to call it dominant, but at least dominant in certain publics in North America, notion of addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease, um, which is the sort of tagline that gets attached to um, an understanding of addiction that's come out of the work um, in neurobiology and, and uh, psychology. Um, and that's been really promoted by um, the national Institute for uh, uh, drug abuse um, and uh, Nancy Campbell, who's one of our contributors, has done a lot of really uh, fascinating um, work, um, both placing that in the history of ideas and research about addiction through the 20th century um, and thinking about what are the meanings and stakes of making this kind of a, a claim um, and making uh, uh, um, it, couching it in the, in the language and in the logics of neuroscience today. Um so if that is one rising um framework then again as as uh, we'll just mentioned the um conception of addiction that comes out of uh 12 step groups and um uh, other kind of uh, rehabilitation oriented therapeutics is another one um and there uh Somerson Carr who is another of our contributors has done a lot of uh, excellent work on this she has a um Uh, Her own monograph actually looks at this, Um, and in her chapter here, she, she looks at the idea of addiction as a disease of denial. Um, and basically, she makes the argument that it's not, it, it owes that it's not just coming out of a kind of 12 step a um, framework, but is also in, informed by uh, a way in which psychoanalysis um, and psychoanalytic ideas of um, have have become so dispersed and so taken up um, as kind of taken for granted assumptions within certain circles and um north america that it's also infused with with certain uh, psychoanalytic uh, ideas um so that is kind of a world away from the setting that i um have studied in in uh russia in the former soviet union um where there was a very different kind of a um Historical trajectory over much of the 20th century. To put it very crudely, in, in some ways, um, for a number of political reasons, uh, the work of Pavlov um, played, in, in some ways, the, the role that um, the work of Sigmund Freud did in 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 the United States throughout the 20th century. In other words, it was um, the kind of a touchstone. Um, and a kind of a, a foundation for much of the um, work in psychology and psychiatry, um, of course, it, the reason it was that it was had to do with uh, um, uh, the um, roles that the the uh, communist Party played in the, in the 1930s 40s and 50s in kind of enforcing the Pavlovian uh, theory as the um, correct um, interpretation of the human mind and brain. Um, and so what What I've looked at in my own work is the ways in which um, even after the 1950s, um, it became possible to do research and um, write about psychology um, in other ways that did not necessarily... Um, always go back to Pavlovian theories um, in addiction medicine in particular, and in the treatments um, that em- emerged as dominant in addiction medicine, there was a kind of a Pavlovian imprint that was already made or that certain certain therapies that had um, congealed during that period or taken, taken shape during that period, took on a life of their own and became the sort of dominant one. And most of them are therapies that, um, were based on um, suggestion, hypnosis, um, these kinds of um, mechanisms. Um, and, um, you know, that's so that's one of the reasons those, those methods are really contested in Russia now. They're still really widespread. And they're one of the reasons why um, when people from North America and elsewhere come and look at the way that addiction is treated there and alcoholism is treated there. They're usually completely, um, they're completely aghast and can't believe that this is the kind of, uh, um, method that's being used. So I, you know, and, and, I'm, and I, and I'm not arguing for those methods necessarily as, uh, to legitimate them, but at the, at the very least to contextualize them and understand them in the, in, um, in 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 terms of their um, historical origins.
1: Well, this is great because once again, the two of you have totally anticipated what I was going to ask you next um, we <laughs> want us to talk about your own work. And so, the volume um, it, this also gets us to the. Um, broadly the second kind of trajectory that you talk about, the therapeutic trajectory. Now, you, you both didn't just edit this great volume. You also contributed really fascinating papers to the volume individually. And Eugene, since you've just um, started talking about yours, let's continue on and get a little bit more of a sense of the kind of work your paper's doing. Now, this is a paper, or this is an essay, rather, called Placebos, or Prostheses for the Will, and it's not your co-author, Will, this is uh, <laughs> (laughs) It's rather the other kind of will, another kind of will. Um, Trajectories of Alcoholism Treatment in Russia. Now, this um, essay focuses on a study of addiction medicine, or what you've already called narcology in Russia, and looks specifically at treatment for alcoholism in the Municipal Addiction Hospital in St. Petersburg. So you've already uh, mentioned a little bit the importance of the influence of Pavlovian theories here, and this is part of a larger argument that you're making in the chapter that the kinds of treatments that you're seeing being embraced by narcologists in this hospital and beyond have been shaped by a, a very particular kind of clinical style of reasoning that's very specific to the context of soviet and post-soviet psychiatry so um can you say a little bit about um just kind of in general this your research at this hospital what kind of treatments um, were you um, looking into specifically um can you talk a little bit about the treatment of and the use of disulfiram What's going on here? Why is it important? And what do you feel is most interesting to you about your work on this particular form of addiction treatment in this context, in this chapter?
2: Sure. Um, So uh, just to put it in context a little bit, disulfiram is a, um, is a chemical compound that has been used, uh, in, to treat, uh, alcoholism in one way or another since, um, it was, um, since the 1930s or 40s, I think in the 1940s, um, basically a couple of Danish chemists, um, discovered it. It was a, a a chemical that was used in, in, um, the production of rubber and, um, so these guys discovered that it um, inhibits the um, body's ability to metabolize uh, uh, ethanol. Um, I, I'm not sure, but if this is apocryphal or not, I think this it might have been one of those cases where uh, one of them drank it to test the toxicity, and then they went out, closed down the lab, and went to the pub, and 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 so they discovered this by experiment on themselves inadvertently. Um, but so it was to, so they realized that this had a potential um because it it, it made you sensitive to uh, alcohol in such a way that you would have this kind of a uh, classic sort of flushing response and experience nausea um, if you had active disulfiram in your body and you drank. So they promoted this as a a mode of therapy. It was taken up all over the world for a while um, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, It has, and generally um, the, it's been written about as something that should be used as a kind of adjunct to other kinds of therapy. In other words, it's a way to help people potentially stay sober while you do other kinds of more psychosocial oriented um, uh, therapy. Um, And generally it has declined in its use in, let's say, Highly resourced settings. Um, it, the, the, the places where it tends to be used are places like the former Soviet Union, parts of India, um, and and other 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 settings. That I've I've heard about it being quite prevalent still. Um, the thing that I was interested in is that um, in in the Soviet Union it arrived um, into a particular. Context And that was um, one that was shaped by this um, Pavlovian um, kind of therapy that I was discussing earlier. Um, so basically, when disulfiram was brought into the Soviet Union, there was another um, mode of, of therapy that was already um, being used widely. And that was one. that that was basically an attempt to condition uh, patients to experience a um, nausea upon um, uh, 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 consuming or even seeing alcohol. Um, And that that therapy came directly out of Pavlov's work. I mean, basically, they tried to do with drinkers the same thing, kind of thing that Pavlov was doing you know with his famous experiments with the dogs um, they would give you a, 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 something to drink um, and at the same time they would inject you with apomorphine which is an emetic makes you feel uh, nauseous uh, makes you throw up and so they would do this a, a, a number of times um, and sometimes even do it collectively and people would you know be puking into these you um, buckets, uh, together and, uh, would develop a a kind of a, um, conditioned response to the, um, smell, taste, sight of alcohol. Um, so disulfiram gets, uh, introduced and, um, the, the interesting thing about it is that you, The way that it inhibits um, drinking is not through any direct, uh, immediate um, uh, chemical effect, but through one's anticipation of potential effects. So in other words, if you know you have disulfiram in your body or you think you have disulfiram in your body, you will anticipate a negative um, effect when you drink. Um, and the, the argument that I make is that the, the Soviet um, psychiatrists and, and um, clinicians at the time, um, because they were seeing things through this kind of a, a Pavlovian lens that focused on um, the kind of effects of uh, performance um, and the shaping of behavior in that way, um, were particularly sensitive to the to the to the idea that it wasn't in fact, um, that you didn't necessarily even need to use the chemical itself. And they started to experiment with placebos. Um, they started to experiment with giving people injections of sort of brightly colored um, substances. Um, they started to experiment with doing um, implants um, mm-hmm. that they told people had, um, would release this disulfiram into their bodies over long periods of time. Um, which was not the case. And this, this then became a very, this became like the widely used uh, method, um, and the, the physicians actually talk about it as placebo therapy, right? So and one of the things that I, I try to explore is when we talk about placebos and think about placebos, the um, kind of association of placebo as, as kind of a nothing, right? A thing that is in, ineffective in some way, um, and in fact, these may not be the most effective therapies for treatment of addiction. But in some cases, um, there are patients who do wait through um, the period of time they're told um, that, 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 that they have this uh, substance in their bodies. Um, and so I was trying to th- think about um, the, the, the kind of idea of are they placebos or prostheses for the will, in other words, is the reason why they're actually at some, for some people effective, is it because they act as a kind of a supplement or a kind of a crutch um, for 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 people um, and a kind of an aid for helping them to um, remain sober. In, in, in essence, it involves a um, frightening them or frightening themselves, right? Because what the physicians usually tell them is that if you drink while you have the substance in your body, you'll die. Um, but at least in some cases, I think that patients go to this with a kind of a willingness or at least a suspension of disbelief. Um, and so, um, it was an interesting kind of a therapy to focus on because I think it really blurs a lot of distinctions that we as North Americans come to um, these kinds of things with distinctions between uh, the somatic and psychological, between psychotherapy and pharmacology, um, and uh, uh, was a useful place to kind of think about that.
1: Well, thank you, Eugene. So we move now from prosthesis for the will to a question for the will, the other will, who also contributed a really fascinating chapter um, to this volume. And we've heard a little bit about, um, Will, in your introduction to... How you came to this project in the first place. We've heard a little bit about how you got interested in this, um, but let's hear a little bit more. So the chapter here that you've written, Chapter 8, you can always tell who's using meth. Methamphetamine addiction and the semiotics of criminal difference. Now this is based on work that you did in a rural community, sorry, a rural community Baker of Co- Baker County, West Virginia, between 2006 and 2007. And this chapter looks at a very different way of understanding not just um, treatment for addiction, but also a model of addiction in general and the consequences of that for the way that the communities and individuals that you're following in this chapter understood, dealt with, and conceptualized addiction in in the case of methamphetamine in particular here. So could you introduce um, this context for us a little bit and talk about um, the elements of the argument you're making here that you find most important for understanding how this is contributing to illness trajectories more generally as a theme?
0: Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, the, the community where I did my field work was a rural community in West Virginia, um, and at the time, there was a significant concern expressed about methamphetamine uh, within kind of every strata of the community. And entering in, my initial focus, uh, I, I had intended my focus to be on the treatment experiences of People who were struggling with methamphetamine addiction in this context. What I soon discovered, however, was it was not really possible to discreetly study treatment experiences here because the criminal justice system played such a significant role in shaping the lives of people who who used and, and or eventually became addicted to methamphetamine. Um, one of the most significant ways with regards to treatment is for many individuals who did end up accessing treatment, that often came within the context of the criminal justice system. So it was court-mandated treatment or it was court-mandated attendance at AA meetings or in a Narcotics Anonymous meetings and uh, even more commonly individuals just um, used, bought and sold drugs in the shadow of the criminal justice system and those who were actually caught uh, ended up uh, being convicted for their crimes and spending time incarcerated and then that in and of itself became part of their experience with and of the drug. Okay. So My project really ended up becoming about the role that the criminal justice system plays in mediating these experiences and the way that the criminal justice system has become ground zero for thinking about and dealing with drugs. With regards to the specific chapter you mentioned, uh, as, as you said, the title of the chapter is you can always tell who's using meth, which is what I was told by one of these workers within the criminal justice system. Anyone is who is familiar with methamphetamine, and I should say more specifically the representation of methamphetamine and its use within the United States, knows that there has been a strong emphasis on the physical impact of using methamphetamine on the user. Um, If you have not seen or been exposed to any of these images, I would encourage you to uh, Google the phrase Faces of Meth, and you will see very quickly the kinds of images that I'm talking about. Um, Interestingly enough, this Faces of Meth campaign was a campaign that came out of the sheriff's office in the Portland, Oregon area. And uh, the images that they produced, which were um, all mugshots, um, and they were mugshots that kind of tracked individuals over a period of time. And and more often than not, they were two mugshots that were separated by and often – Unmentioned period of time that showed this person's essentially physical decay as a result of their use of methamphetamine. So they um, they show up with these significant scabs on their face. They have hair loss. They have tooth loss. Their faces tend to be shrunken in. They look as though they've aged ten or twenty years, and they look much older than than they appear to be. They often have these, you know, really kind of kind of frightened or or other kind of disengaged, anxious kinds of expressions on their faces. And in fact, these images have circulated extremely widely. And in my fieldwork site, um, one of the images that's reproduced in in the chapter in the volume is this poster that was up in the sheriff's office that was effectively both an anti-drug poster and a, this is how you identify drugs and people who are on drugs poster. And, some of the most prominent images on that poster were these images that came from this Faces of Meth campaign. Mm -hmm. So there's been this big emphasis um, in the representation of methamphetamine and attempts to uh, curtail the use of methamphetamine on showcasing the physical impact of meth use on the individual user's body. What I chart in the chapter is how that Particular representation was being taken up within the criminal justice system, looking both at um, policing practices, at uh, and court practices, but also at um, the uh, in, within institutions of incarceration, the, the local jail specifically. Within each of these institutions, officials w- within those institutions. Um, openly discussed and were quick to discuss the, the, the impact that methamphetamine had. And so, you know, the jail warden talked about how, you know, he could always tell who the methamphetamine users were when they came in. Police officers talked about how they would actually stop people on the street or when they were driving who displayed these, these signs of methamphetamine use, and they would actually kind of use that as, as a quasi-probable cause Uh, to stop the person and question them about their involvement with drugs and drug use. And so I chart the way that that not just the symptomatology of methamphetamine specifically, as it appears on the body of user, was was utilized within these um, criminal justice contexts, but how the deeper understanding of addiction as a chronic relapsing disease of the brain, something over which the individual has no control. That paradigm was also taken up in particular ways uh, by professionals within these contexts and actually uh, proved very, um, well, it had a a significant utility for them in their work by allowing them to effectively identify criminals within the more general population to target their interventions in particular ways, to even conduct forms of, of uh, population management and triage within the, the, um, jail system, um, for evaluating, uh, uh, people who were on trial or being processed within the court system. So this knowledge and and understanding of of, of addiction as a chronic relapsing disease of the brain that was utilized and taken up in very specific ways. And the broader point I try to make in in tracing this is to um, cast some shadows of doubt on an idea that I think is still very prominent within the U.S. that... um, medicalization and specifically biomedicalization of the condition of addiction will necessarily lead to a more treatment oriented, public health oriented response. What I found in my ethnographic work was that the more medicalized version of addiction and the more criminalized version of of drug use, come addiction, um, those actually are perhaps more compatible than we've thought in the past.
1: Great. Well, thank you both so much. I just have a couple questions before I ask you my final, final question. It's already been a really interesting conversation. Um, I just want to mention for listeners, there's a whole lot more going on in the volume than we have had a chance to talk about. This is just a tiny little taste of even the ways that each of your are. Um, individual chapters, let alone the volume as a whole, can really contribute to and speak to and, and work with some of the concepts from STS more broadly. I know, Will, in your chapter, um, you also have a really interesting way of thinking through spaces of addiction, sort of for, in your discussion from the movement of or of the movement from the clinic to the court. You've already talked a little bit about the sort of visual cultures of addiction in the faces of meth. And Eugene, um, another thing that really struck me from your chapter um, was the special attention that you were playing to, or that you were paying to, and that you argued the um, both patients and treaters. Um, in your context, we're paying to the ritual and performative elements of the clinical encounter. Elsewhere in the volume, I think the two of you also mention, Um, the possibility of thinking about addiction treatment as a form of experimentation, um, which I think also speaks to a way of broadening our notion of what and where the spaces of experimentation in the broad history of science, technology, and medicine um, look like. And so there's a lot going on in the volume, even in just the materials that the two of you are directly responsible for writing, um, that I think really speaks to a lot of elements of the STS conversation are there i know that you both probably I mean as as editors the answer to this could be all of the chapters are great just read all of them and, and that's probably what the answer um, I anticipate will be but are there any specific chapters before we kind of come to a close in the volume that you that either one of you feel like particularly singling out for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it as especially um, you can't miss this one or this one's really awesome. Um, keeping in mind that I'm sure all you know that all of the chapters are great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, Eugene, you go first. Well. So, yeah, the, all, I mean, all the chapters are really great. And and the, the, one of the cool things is that um, a number of the chapters are now um, uh, that the, the people who wrote them have already um, published their monographs around the same time. Um, so one way of thinking about this is a kind of a sampler platter of um, the addiction, uh, anthropology of addiction taking place today Um from which you can go on, um, and read more. So, uh, Angela Garcia and Natasha Schultz, Todd Myers, um, and Carr, um, Nancy Campbell, um, and Will as well. Every, all have, um, their own, um, monographs that they've recently published on their, on their work. Um, aside from those great, um, pieces, um, Anne Lavelle, who is, a um, uh, anthropologist, uh, American anthropologist who's been working in France for many years has a really fascinating, um, chapter. Um, and the reason I would, um, point out that one is because we, actually um, it dealt with these issues of trajectories and circulation um, in a way that I think may have inspired us in particular um, in our thinking conceptual thinking here we, we used a vignette from her piece um, up front in the in the introduction um, so that's definitely one not to be missed among the others um, Jamie Saris has a really wonderful um, more more of a thought piece a, a really nice essay called Committed to Will what's at stake for anthropology and addiction um, that is the kind of penultimate piece um, and then um, we were uh, lucky enough to get uh, Emily Martin um, uh, a, a, a really important figure in the anthropology of science and technology um, to write the afterword for, for this piece. Um, and she's really been someone who I think has been so influential for many of us as she started doing this kind of work on not addiction, but anthropology of um, uh, the body of science and more recently of psychiatry from the 1980s. Um, it, it, she's been so influential. And in, in for, for many of us, it was to, to have her contribute it afterward.
0: Yeah, I would I would second Eugene's opening statement that that you know it really is impossible for me to just pick one of these and highlight it. I mean, a couple that I that I will just note: um, Helena Hansen's piece and Summerson Carr's piece. Both both of them do really great jobs contrasting two different ways of thinking about addiction and the implications of those so Kind of bringing it back to this idea of what does it mean to think in terms of addiction trajectories and what what's what's the the payoff if you will of of, of thinking in those terms I think that's one area where you where they provide a ni- or these pieces provide nice comparisons between um, two different ways of thinking about addiction and they really trace out the full implications of those uh, showing how particular ideas of thinking about addiction rest on particular ideas about thinking about the human condition and uh, all of that is implicated in the particular ways that um, therapeutic interventions of various sorts are pursued.
1: Great. Well, thank you both very much. Um, There's obviously a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about and I hope listeners will go out and find copies of the book and read it for themselves. But in the meantime, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention about the book for listeners, either one of you?
2: Um, well, I would uh, first of all, I just wanted to thank you, Carla, for inviting us uh, on the show and um, having us uh, uh, get a chance to talk. Um, the only thing I wanted to add is that um, the introduction of the book is actually available for free to download um, in a number of places. I think we both have it on our um, websites, and it's on the um, Scribd page of uh, uh, Duke University Press as well. So you can get, you know, downloaded and introduct- the introduction and read it and, you know, and decide for yourself whether um,
0: you want to get the, the book. And I, I would just underscore, again, something that Eugene mentioned earlier, which is to say that uh, many of the pieces featured here are by authors who have since gone on to publish um, uh Uh, full-length books, and I would strongly encourage folks who who find the volume interesting to seek out those volumes, because the work that these folks are doing, really tracing out these trajectories in the way that we lay it out, is really best accomplished through a kind of monograph format, because it is about bringing in all these different elements and attending to to history, to local conditions, to um, epistemological conditions, and so on. And um, I think the the monographs that have been produced by the authors contributing to this volume are all really fantastic, and and folks should seek those out. Great.
1: So now that the book is out, and congratulations to you both. It's a fabulous collection. What's next for you? What are you working on now? And maybe, Will, do you want to start? Sure.
0: So as I mentioned um, earlier, my initial interest in addiction led to an interest, um, or I guess I should say a need to grapple with the the criminal justice system and the role that it's been playing um, as kind of ground zero for dealing with uh, drug-related issues in the U.S. My current research is looking at kind of what's happening now in the criminal justice system in the U.S. The wake of the financial crisis amongst other factors has really called into question the, um The sustainability of the approach, the approach that's been taken so far that really emphasizes the enforcement model that um, utilizes incarceration significantly. Uh, California is currently under a Supreme Court order to deal with um, crowding within its prison system. It's actually been rendered unconstitutional, the conditions um, under which prisoners are living. And a lot of that prison growth has been, or prison population growth has been driven by our drug policy and the emphasis that's been placed on drug enforcement within that policy. You currently have our attorney general talking about how there needs to be criminal justice reform and citing how we deal with um, drug offenders, particularly low-level nonviolent offenders, as being one of the most significant areas in which reform needs to take place, not just as a kind of logistical or administrative matter, but really as a matter of justice in the deepest sense. He, he has kind of come out formally recognizing the inequalities that that have led to and are being perpetuated by the way we respond to drugs in the U.S. Um, so I think it's a really a moment of shift where there's uh an openness, whether whether coerced or or come at by some other means, um, where some significant changes in the criminal justice system could take place. Uh, I mean, one other thing to mention is just the changing attitudes about drugs in general, and marijuana specifically. The kinds of um, experimentation, if you will, with with changing. Uh, marijuana policy within particular states that currently the federal government is is allowing to take place. You know, all of this signifies uh, some, some relatively profound or potentially profound shifts in the way that we think about and respond to drugs in the U.S. Um, at the same time, the, the war on drugs and that legacy, even though the current administration is formally distancing itself from that language, uh, the war on drugs continues to cast a very long shadow over the way we think about drugs, the way we respond to drugs. And so looking forward, I am very interested in how the criminal justice system changes and adapts and what opportunities exist to chart a new path for thinking about drugs and responding to drugs um within the criminal justice system and of course outside.
1: Thank you, Eugene?
0: Um, well, the first thing i 'd say is that
2: uh, Will and I have continued to um, think through some of the uh, ideas that we um, came to in uh, writing the introduction to this and editing the volume and are working on a couple of uh, short shorter pieces um, trying to do um, some you know thinking through some uh, some of these ideas a little bit further i 'm um, starting right now i 'm just um, re- wrapping up my monograph um, on the Russian a uh, project and at the very beginning of um, what will hopefully be two new projects. Um, They're not on addiction per se, but um, both of them um, look more broadly at the kind of intersections of um, contemporary uh, biosciences and uh, mental health and psychiatry. Uh, One of those projects is a collaboration uh, with uh, Stephanie Lloyd at uh, McGill um, and Suparna Chowdhury, who's also at uh, McGill University. Um, And we're looking at um, research. We're doing a kind of a um, ethnographic study of um, research on the epigenetics of suicide risk that's being done at McGill. Um, so basically, uh, and McGill is interesting because it's it's a site where a lot of this early work looking at the environmental. Um, a regulation of gene expression um, was first um, uh, carried out. And so we're doing uh, work looking at that, and we're interested both in the ways that relationship between the environment and the body and heredity are changing, both for scientists and potentially for lay people as well. And then the other project, which is even in a in an earlier stage of, um, infancy is, um, I'm, I'm going to be starting a project on, uh, mental health among, uh, undergrads in the U S and there again, I'm interested in issues of how, um, different languages and logics of, um, disease of disability, uh, and different uh, practices of using psychotropic drugs um, are shaping the ways in which uh, uh, undergrads in particular have of um, communicating um, and um, thinking about and experiencing um, distress.
1: Well, thank you both and Mm -hmm. best of luck on all of these projects. They sound Mm -hmm. fabulous and I'll look forward to talking with both Mm -hmm. of you about them in the future. So thank you. Congratulations on a great book and it's been a pleasure. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much.